Welcome to The Sci-Files, a new podcast by the Kentucky Psychological Association. I'm Rachel Yeager. I'm Logan Burris. And I'm Jared Mask. Our podcast focuses on exploring different areas of interest in psychology here in the state of Kentucky. Each episode, we will be interviewing some of Kentucky's leading experts of psychology, and we'll discuss issues related to social causes in and around our beautiful state. Before we get started, we thought it would be a good idea to introduce ourselves. We are all first-year clinical psychology doctoral students at Eastern Kentucky University. I'm from a small town outside of Louisville, and that is exactly how you pronounce it. Louisville. My clinical interests include substance abuse, trauma, and correctional psychology, or working inside the prison system. Basically, what that means is I have no idea what I want to do. So, I'm from Florence, Alabama, and apparently the way that I talk makes that very obvious, as my two very gracious co-hosts let me know on various occasions. My clinical interests revolve around working with trauma and suicide prevention, I would eventually like to open up my own private practice in Florence, Alabama, or just different areas in Alabama, working with this sort of demographic. I was raised in the small town of Partridge in southeastern Kentucky, deep in the heart of the Appalachian Mountains. Currently, my clinical interests are working with children and adolescents, working with people who have eating disorders, and working with the rural population. However, just like Rachel mentioned before, we are all only in our first year of the program, so I know when it comes to me, I'm sure those will change over time. For our pilot episode, we will be interviewing Dr. Teresa Botts, Associate Professor of Psychology at Eastern Kentucky University. Dr. Botts is near and dear to our hearts as one of our very own professors. We could think of no one better to help break many of the stigmas surrounding therapy. Dr. Botts, we would like to ask a little bit about um, your clinical interests and your credentials and also the populations that you tend to work with. Okay. Uh, First of all, Logan, I want to say that it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I look forward to this chat. Uh, Let me start by saying I've been a clinical faculty member in the EKU psychology department for, oh, sad to say, or happy to say, I guess I should say, for 32 years. Uh, Currently, I serve as the director of the EKU psychology clinic, and I teach mostly graduate courses in our PsyD clinical uh, program. And my clinical and research interests involve trauma. Um, I recently developed uh, a trauma and suicide prevention clinic uh, in collaboration with Dr. Melinda Moore. And so that's been off the ground and running. We're going into, I think, our second year. Uh, So, of course, populations that I like to work with, I love working with juveniles and adults. I do some child work. uh, But, again, my primary emphasis is on uh, doing trauma work. That's great to hear, Dr. Botts. And for this episode, we would like to focus uh, kind of on how people may view therapy or questions that people may have about therapy. And with the first question is Rachel. Hi, Dr. Botts. Um, Hi, I'm, Rachel. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? Doing well, thanks. All right. Well, the very first question that I wanted to ask you is what are some common things clients should expect in therapy? Well, I think that most clients expect to uh, meet with someone who's very empathetic, non-judgmental, and can provide really good guidance. And note that I say guidance and not advice, because I think we do have some clients that seek out uh, basically just an answer to or solution to presenting issues or problems that they're encountering. 
Uh, I think we also have to look at clients' motivation for change and where they are when they come in. Uh, some may be forced to seek help. Uh, others give the occasional thought to changing. Uh, some are more prepared for change and actually see uh, the help that they're seeking as desirable. And of course, we love uh, when we have clients coming in at that point, but if they're not there, that's okay. We work with where they are. Uh, we try to meet them where they are and to help to move them forwards towards uh, specific actions and skill development uh, that hopefully will improve their lives. So another common question that we've felt that um, potential clients or people that aren't used to therapy may have is, am I going to have to talk about uncomfortable things to my therapist, such as my childhood? Yeah, and I think that is a common concern uh, that people bring into uh, making a decision about whether or not to seek uh, therapy. And I'll address the issue in reference to childhood experiences and, you know, kind of the fears centered around, am I going to have to talk about a lot of that? Uh, I think that when you look at what's going to happen in a session in reference to this being a focus, uh, what a client will talk about in reference to these childhood experiences will vary from person to person and from therapist to therapist. Um, one's therapy orientation or the therapy orientation of a therapist might also uh, influence how much childhood experiences are emphasized. I think to some degree, most therapists will express at least some interest in a client's childhood, uh, but to what degree, again, is dependent upon the factors that I just uh, noted. Well, thank you, Dr. Botts, and I'll pass it on to Rachel yes, once again. Yes, that, that, that would be me, the person sitting to your right. Um, <laughs> love that sense of humor oh Rachel. isn't it fantastic i think it's great that we get to do a podcast together because we pick on each other all the time but uh sorry dr botts this interview is about you and not us anyway. <laughs> okay so um i personally i was terrified of crying in a therapy session and that's one of the main reasons why i never really wanted to go because i like you, you open the floodgates and that's it you know so then I had my very first session in therapy, and I ended up crying. I was so uh, concerned that I was going to be judged or that uh, someone, someone else would have this knowledge and a sense of power over me. But honestly, it wasn't like that at all. Can you maybe talk with us about some of the stigmas that exist surrounding therapy? Sure. I, th I think that... Um a fear of being judged by a therapist is one of the things that, again, contributes to uh, people not seeking services and adds to the stigma associated with doing so. Uh, as I noted earlier, I think people seek help and want to have a therapist who is empathetic and non-judgmental. Uh, so as you noted, the thought of crying in front of a therapist and you thinking that they may perceive you as weak, uh, for example, lessens the person's motivation to seek help. I think that's why it's so important for us as helping professionals to educate the public about what therapy actually involves and what they can expect. The skill of demonstrating unconditional positive regard, as of course you as my students know, <laughs> proposed by Rogers, can never be underestimated. So, and, and another reframe that I try and do with my clients is talk about crying is, is very cathartic. Um, and it just means that you're feeling something at a depth that it needs to be expressed. And what better place to do that than where hopefully your therapist is demonstrating good empathy and that unconditional positive regard. Dr. Botts, I was wondering, what do you mean when you say unconditional positive regard? 
this is, and again, this, I, I have to stray away from my psychological jargon here, I guess, but uh, oh, to okay. break down a little bit, unconditional positive regard is basically when you uh, accept and are caring of, about someone, regardless of, for example, what behaviors they may have engaged in. Uh, so you see them for the value of just being a human being and, and uh, worthy of help. And so it's kind of like, no matter what they bring to the table, you still see that you can work with them and collaborate to help bring about change. It sounds like we all need a bit of that. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, you're preaching to the choir probably here with all of us, with you all being uh, students of psychology and of course being a psychology professor here, but absolutely the world could, could definitely benefit, especially in this day and time. Well, thank you, Dr. Botts. The next question, um, you know, I feel like as, as far as things that can be misunderstood about therapy, there's definitely some misconceptions with your, um, with your professionals that you may be uh, seeking therapy with. And a question that I feel like is common to our listeners is, uh, in therapy, will my psychologist be prescribing me any medications? Yes, I, I totally agree. That's one. I think there is some confusion over what uh, certain mental health professionals do. Uh, so the majority of psychologists do not have prescription privileges. Uh, there are only a few states that actually allow psychologists to uh, have prescription privileges, and that's only after fairly intensive uh, training that they're able to do that. Uh, in most cases, if medication is needed, the client will be referred to a psychiatrist. Uh, most psychologists provide diagnoses, psychological assessment, and therapy. So what that sounds like to me is a, a good bit of your, in, unless they've had certain uh, postdoctoral training, uh, it sounds like there's a good bit of a chance that the therapist that you're seeing will not be able to, pr to prescribe you medications as, as more, it's going to be more likely they're going to be using psychotherapy or a form of therapy with you rather than the medication. Yes, Absolutely. Okay, so with that being said, if the therapist can't or psychologist can't prescribe you medication, how is therapy going to benefit me? Again, I mentioned that most psychologists, what they're providing is uh, diagnostic impressions. They're uh, doing assessments to derive those diagnostic impressions. And once that is accomplished, developing in collaboration with the client a treatment plan uh, that will enable the client to address whatever issues they're bringing in. Um, I think that they help you in many different ways to build insights and skills that you'll need to kind of, uh, my approach is to help the client to help themselves. Uh, so that once therapy is terminated, they have an arsenal of skills and knowledge that will help them to better manage their life, uh, even without that therapist's presence. Dr. Botts, um, I know that some people that are struggling with mental illness, they may believe that their problems aren't as serious as they think or aren't as serious enough to consider therapy, or they may believe that, uh, you know, with imposter syndrome, and that means that, you know, they think that they're faking it. What would you tell those people? I, I think that if someone is struggling with an issue or maybe multiple issues in their life and it's impacting their ability to lead the life that they want to, uh, a therapist may be able to help. So I want to convey that. I want them to know that psychological pain and angst is in the eye of the beholder. 
Uh, so there's no minimizing that. If they're feeling it, then it's something that we can address and help them to work on. So I hope as a psychologist that I'm validating uh, the person's thinking and feeling in light of uh, their perceptions and looking at the impact that that issue is having on them and then helping them to address it in the best way possible. Uh, so whether the goal is something like personal growth or it's about working to help them with more severe mental health issues, it's important to let the client know that I will collaborate with them, uh, again, to help make these needed changes and improvements in their life. And Dr. Botts, I actually remember specifically from undergrad a statement that you made in, in one of the courses. It was, never trust a therapist who does not get therapy. So I thought that was very interesting. Even therapists can use therapy, right? Absolutely. I think we all have room for personal growth. Um, that's not to say that all therapists necessarily have to seek that out. But again, if you are seeking to gain some insight into, uh, you know, even in who you are and how you present as a mental health professional, how your life experiences impact your perceptions, your worldview, and how that translates in the work that you do with your clients. You know, I think we can all benefit from those kinds of insights and reflections. So, so whether it's actual therapy itself or just working to know more about self, you know, physician know thyself, when this case, psychologist know thyself. Mm. I think that y'all it's, it's a lifelong journey. And as all of you know, in, uh, classes that you've had with me, one of the things that I emphasize that everything that we do um, is a process and not an event. That includes your growth as a therapist, your growth as a just an individual or human being in general. So I, I look at it from that perspective, and I, I hope I'm passing that message on that we're throughout our lifetime building uh, our sense of knowledge and insight about ourselves and others. Well, I know for a fact that you are passing that message along to your students, but Jared, I think he had a question that he wanted to ask. Yeah, no, uh, not so much of a question, but you know how I work on correlations a bunch. I like to relate things. That's how I learn. Uh, just going back on Rachel's first comment, she said, uh, you know, she had mentioned you wouldn't want to see a therapist, you know, that is not willing to have therapy and, and work on themselves. The one thing that I remember you were talking to us in our um, – psychotherapy class last semester and one thing that stuck in my head about like it's okay as a mental health professional to also seek help is you know a lot of people um you know you wouldn't want to go get a tattoo from a tattoo artist that doesn't have tattoos and it, you know it could be just because you want to know that somebody is passionate about the work they do and so that's just what stuck in my head at that point in time to remember that sort of thing you got me chuckling about the tattoos <laughs> <laughs> now i only have one tattoo um, and it's not a good one, and I wish I didn't have it. So I don't know if it was right for me to make that comment because I personally don't like the tattoo art tattoo that I had because the artist didn't have one themselves. Oh, so, they didn't have a tattoo at all? No, it was someone Jared. that uh, it was it was a uh, it was I don't know if you know familiar with a stick and poke tattoo. Oh yeah. But just over and over, uh, not a clean needle. Um, Jared, I, I, I should have probably gone oh, to see God. someone. But that's aside the point. We should probably get back on our interview. That's not about me and my personal problems because we could do a whole series on that one. <laughs> That'll be the next episode, Jerry. <laughs> I think it's relevant because what you're addressing there is the issue of competency. So just like with the tattoo artists, therapists, psychologists, mental health professionals in general need to be competent at what they do and they need to believe in what they're doing. So whether they're someone who has sought therapy and seen the benefits uh, – as a result of that, or someone that 
really through their training and life experiences have come to really see the power of change that can be implemented through therapy. It's, it's, you know, it's all, it's all relevant. So. <laughs> all right. Well, what about confidentiality? There, this is a, the, a big issue. I know many people may be worried about how, how do therapists approach confidentiality? Yeah. And as you all know, confidentiality is something that I think that you have to be well versed on and anticipate questions that a client might have in reference to it. The thought of what I say in a private session with a therapist being somehow leaked out or revealed to other people outside that session uh, can be pretty uh, overwhelming to think about and might contribute to a person's decision not to seek help. So, and so I think again, by educating the public about the confidential nature of the relationship that a therapist and a client share is important. But in addition to that, when someone does come to seek help from you, then one of the first things that you need to address is confidentiality. And sometimes just breaking down the fact that, you know, one of the things I like to say to clients is what's said in here stays in here with a few exceptions. And of course, those exceptions are in light of if there's any kind of risk or danger to uh, vulnerable populations or to the client themselves or to, you know, if the client is threatening uh, to harm someone. And then there's other uh, stipulations that are more legally connected. But nevertheless, the idea that we have to educate our clients about confidentiality and that we are here to maintain that confidentiality and that legally and ethically we're bound by mandates uh, to make sure that we're doing just that. Okay, so how many sessions of therapy would I need? Uh, and that's a good, good question as well that I don't think can be addressed in an overgeneralized manner, you know, there are some um, there are some approaches to treating certain types of issues where you might have set up a, a program of intervention where you know the guideline might be that we'll have eight to ten sessions, for example. But that said, I think we still have to have some flexibility that ensures that every client is treated based on their own unique therapy needs. So that standardized eight to 10 sessions may need to be expanded, extended. Uh, for example, some people come to therapy to explore more de much more deeper issues and need more sessions while others need shorter term uh, therapy. So my response to your question, I guess, is to say that it just depends and always make sure that you're uh, attending to the unique needs of the client in making that decision. Right, and, and I guess, and you know, when you say that, that brings me back to our class once again. And I know depending on if it's uh, a CBT type therapy that may not, uh, I guess, let me rephrase. If, you know, you're going to therapy for something trauma-centered, you, you can expect to have a lot more sessions than you would potentially for something else is what that brings me back to. Yeah, and so not only the uniqueness of the individual, but the uniqueness of the, uh, well, the presenting issues or concerns that the client brings. And, of course, trauma typically is uh, a little longer term. You know, you have to build rapport, you have to build that level of trust where people are open uh, to sharing their narrative and then doing the work that's necessary. And, you know, sometimes it can be, uh, like opening up a can of worms as they start to reveal that narrative. So it definitely can take more time than, say, uh, if you're working on maybe developing skills, social skills or developing skills to um, work on something. Like I, every time I get in front of a, a classroom and have to give an oral presentation, I get anxious. So, so again, yeah, it, so the number of sessions is always dependent upon 
um, you know, what the needs of the client are and the unique needs of the client. So Dr. Botts, what would your advice be to a person who is hesitant about seeking therapy, whether that be about the stigmas or maybe they are just nervous or scared? Yeah, I think we have to take an educational approach, um, help to educate them about the intent and purpose of therapy, try to be extremely supportive and in that educational process, dispense some of the common misconceptions about mental health and seeking help, in addition to really listening to any misconceptions that they may harbor themselves. Uh, being sensitive to their fears and alerting them to uh, their own readiness for change, as I mentioned earlier, is also important. Additionally, helping them to identify specific sources of help. Uh, in addition, you know, if you're a therapist talking to someone and educating them, then you might be that point or resource that they seek help from. But they may need additional resources. You know, we mentioned earlier, if someone in Kentucky, for example, needed uh, medication for uh as part of their intervention, then we definitely would be referring out. Sometimes it's more, uh, you know, everyday kind of survival needs that need to be met. They don't have a roof over their heads or, you know, there's there's financial uh, stresses that are impacting them. So we might have to refer them out for uh, uh, to a social worker or to help find other resources to meet those needs as well. So you know, we're, we're big, we should be in the role of being advocates for our clients. And so we bring our talents and skills to help them with uh, the psychological, emotional issues that they might present with. But we also have to be knowledgeable about the art of referral. Okay, so I have a little bit of a fun question. I would like to talk about fun questions. <laughs> oh, okay, fun question, fun question. Okay, I would like to talk about the proverbial couch. Freud has had his clients lay on couches in therapy. Why is that a thing? All right. Well, I think the image of Freud's couch, I think that image continues to contribute to people's misconceptions about therapy to some degree. Now, that's not to minimize Freud's impact. There's some really positive things that have come out of his uh, particular orientation, like the emphasis on childhood experiences and recognizing that uh, past childhood history can impact uh, what the client presents with even in uh, the present time. So, but anyone who has been made even slightly aware of Freud's theories knows about that, that couch, you know, it's, uh, they envision themselves lying back and stretched out with their eyes closed and looking up at the ceiling. And, you know, there's this uh, therapist behind them uh, that is, is basically out of sight and asking them questions. Again, go back to that are you going to ask me about my childhood experiences? And I think one of the uh, misconceptions too, is that everybody's going to talk about their mama and the role, the relationship that they've had with their mother since day one. So, so I think that contributes to some of the perceptions about what therapy involves. And then on top of that, um, they think, well, not only do I have to lay on that couch, uh, for a given session, but, you know, using the old standards of psychoanalytic therapy that I'm going to be doing this for years and it's going to be pretty costly. So that's kind of the traditional notion of the couch and psychoanalysis. And, but I want us to move away from just that image and what it implies. And so this image, again, it can lead to misinformation about the collaborative nature of therapy and the more active role that we ask our clients to play in the helping process. I think more contemporary approaches 
uh, while recognizing the significance, for example, of childhood experiences, as I noted earlier, and that there is much to be said about insight gains that can be made, um, that we, we, we really want the client to know that we're going to expect them to take a more active role in their own therapy. So let's, let's you know, we can hold on to the history of the couch, but let's, let's add some updates to it. I agree, Dr. Botts. Now, I wasn't sure. I thought he had the couch there because he was just so boring that often his clients would fall asleep. <laughs> no. He was a really weird guy. I'm just I don't know that Freud there. would ever be boring. But. No, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Botts, I... So let me get this straight. So I just bought a cherry red, um, just lined couch for my future. I need to get rid of that. <laughs> what? I wouldn't say get rid of it. Just right. Use it, okay. use it selectively. But that can't it's, trump my therapy skills. I need to continue working on the therapy skills and not just rely on the couch is what you're saying. I think that's true. I don't think man from heaven's going to drop down while the person's on the couch and they're going to be walking away in a, a given session after a given session and say, oops, need no more help. All's good. <laughs> so you're telling me that I am not going to get my doctorate just because I bought a couch. Pray not. Pray that's not. really It's not even part of the criteria. That two-for-one deal we got, sounds like we got scammed. <laughs> we did get scammed. Me and Rachel just got a two-for-one deal. Oh, uh, man. We got a couch, two of them, great price, and now we're both really mad. Well, I thought that we could just, like, walk into somebody's office and just get the doctorate. Couch. And you just show them a picture of the couch, couch and then we're like, yeah. look, I have a Freudian couch. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's got a slip on it. You know, you know like they say, Dr. Bot, hindsight <laughs> is twenty twenty. <laughs> Bum, bum, bum. Well, you know I'm the queen of reframe. Right, right. I'm the queen of reframe. So what I say here is the couch can be used for good self-care. So use it for what it was made for, and that is for wonderful relaxation periods. So just chill out in it. Okay, good deal. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Botts, for your great insight and for being a good sport in this crazy mess right now. Yeah, it's um, crazy, crazy, crazy. A garbage can fire, if you will. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dr. Botts, I remember now going back to a few questions ago, you kind of mentioned the need for education and advocacy on the parts of not only the professionals but also the students in these programs. I was wondering what can we do as students or as professionals in our field to break the stigma of mental health and of going to therapy? And, and I think it goes back to, and you've said these words yourself, and actually just a few minutes ago, and that is educate, educate, educate. Uh, one of the things that we do in our EKU psychology clinic is provide outreach trainings uh, to people in the community to address uh, issues related to mental health. Uh, you know, whether it's talking about what therapy actually entails and the role that the therapist and the client play uh, in that process, or it's about educating on a particular um, oh, like issues related to uh, PTSD, uh, understanding what that diagnosis or post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, what that diagnosis might entail and how family members and friends and the person diagnosed with it uh, can take an active role in assisting in the therapy process. Again, I think it really is about educating. Thank and you. I mentioned advocacy because I think, uh, you know, I, there's so many things that from a, 
even from a political standpoint that psychologists can lobby for in terms of educating our legislature legislatures about uh, the impact of what mental health bills, for example, and laws, uh, what impact they might have on service provision and, um, you know, us doing a better job across the state of Kentucky, for example, in providing services and doing it in a way that's equitable and that, you know, there's parity there in, in ensuring that uh, all populations are able to be recipients of good mental health care. So as students, you can definitely educate others about that uh, from your hometown to uh, when you're working in practicum or internship sites, there's there's no stopping uh, the impact that you can have on just providing for a more informed uh, community. So that's what I would propose anyway. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Botts. And you know, I really thank um, we can do so much as students, as as regular people too. Not even, if if even if you're not a student or a professional in the field. And I think that's one of the main reasons why we three wanted to do this podcast, because I think this is a really good tool for advocacy and also to educate people who may not may not know the ins and outs of therapy. They may not understand the psychology, and I think that's really important work. And so thank you again for giving us even more uh, opportunities and ideas to be those advocates and be, uh, be the educators. You know, and I say, it's like you say, Dr. Botts, you know, we're not only therapists, like, you know, what you preach to us and we've been preached to a lot, you know, advocacy is a huge role in the mental health field. And I think sometimes, you know, just as a, um, you know, a stereotype as a mental health professional, not only as a psychologist, you can just think about that therapeutic aspect. And, you know, one thing I feel like this program's done well for us is just really, you know, hone in on that uh, advocacy uh, part of our um, responsibility. And, you know, I would just like to thank you personally for um, showing us that important part of uh, our job as a professional. Thank you so much. I appreciate you saying that. And again, I always encourage students to become involved in organizations uh, that serve the purpose of promoting advocacy and that allow students to have a voice. Uh, an organization that I'm actively involved in, and I know that many of your student members and many of your cohort are student members in, is the Kentucky Psychological Association. And they do such great work in serving as advocates for uh, making sure that mental health uh, services are uh First of all, that people become aware of what's offered and even from a lobbyist standpoint that they uh, basically uh, work hard to ed better educate our lawmakers and uh, helping them to look at, again, the impact that passing a bill on mental health uh, can have on people in Kentucky. So, so again, I encourage students to become actively involved in such organizations. Absolutely. And we encourage them to uh, get involved with the KPA as well. Um, I think we have one final question that we want to tackle today, and it's kind of a weird one. I've but been looking forward to this one. Have you? You've been thinking about it? And, and we'll give you a few examples of, <laughs> of it as well. But um, hey, You're scaring me. No, no, no. Don't be scared. You're scaring um, me. <laughs> which one of us do you like the most? No. <laughs> <laughs> Rate Jared on a scale of 1 to 10 just as a person Are and you, go. Would you consider yourself my friend? <laughs> As I tell my kids, I pick no favorites. No favorites. Okay. I pick no favorites. All of you are favorites. Oh, yay. 
but like for real, we're we're your favorites. When so, we right? cut this off, we'll let you actually answer that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, we don't have to publicize it, but let's be honest. Later, <laughs> anyway. okay. So <laughs> the final question that we want to ask is that okay? So everyone has a superpower. Some people use it for evil, and some people use it for good. And we're going to give you a few examples of our superpowers that we have as well. So it can be big or small, and it can be uh, powerful or quirky. Mine is being able to get any song stuck in someone's head. I have an uncanny ability to just give people earworms and ruin their lives. So, of course, I use my powers for evil. You know, and Rachel, I just want to interrupt you right there. And I, I don't mean to be rude, uh, but I just want like to comment on the evil aspect of your answer. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just, uh, mm. I, I think you are evil. Thank you so much. And um, I would agree with you, but only in this aspect where I get songs stuck in people's heads, right? Like that's No, no, that's not what I meant, but thank you. Uh, I meant <laughs> all other aspects, but you anyways, so I, I don't want to interrupt you any further. That might actually, your superpower might actually be the only good thing good about thing. you. Good thing, or you're going to, is that what, <laughs> oh we've gosh. actually talked about this before this interview. Yeah, we, that's the only mean. thing we do like, of, right? That's true. This yeah. is Dr. Botts, I think I might need to go to therapy. <laughs> Well, you now all you have know. From being classmates to being siblings, I, I just know it. I just realized that. Yes, we've we have ascended. <laughs> and we want to thank you for helping us form this uh, sibling type rivalry yeah. with each other. Yeah, um, yeah. So, Jared, what is your superpower? <laughs> okay. Well, Rachel, uh, um, thank you for that. You're welcome. Uh, I'm not sure what that last little sound was, <laughs> but thank you, anyways. Um, so, mine's so an odd one. Mean. Uh, I have the ability to um, not only enjoy, uh, or not only thrive in, but I enjoy uh, cringe situations. Oh, um, my goodness. Right, and and you didn't ask for it, but I'm going to give you an example. Okay, um, yeah. So, fast food. If You know, when I go to, a, uh, like, a Wendy's drive-thru, for example, um, you know, like, a lot of people, for a hobby, they enjoy golfing. Uh, or fishing. And I know a lot of you Kentuckians enjoy your hunting. Mm, um, yes. You know, so for me, I'm not big on those, but one thing I do like to do is go through drive throughs And when they ask me, uh, can we take your order? Uh, oh, can please? I do this? Can I do this? Yeah. Uh, if you, would you like to role play? Yes, something? absolutely. Okay, sure. uh, Dr. Botts, thank you. This is our role playing skills in action. Yes, right, absolutely. Ready? And scene. Hi, welcome to Wendy's. I groomed you. Yes, you she did. She groomed us. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Hi, welcome to Wendy's. Can I take your order? Um, no, I'm not very hungry. Um, but will, will you be my mom? Excuse me. And you and you do that to people who work at fast food restaurants. Yeah, no, see, I do. And the thing about it is, is it's a gift and a curse. Like my <laughs> buddies in high school thought it was funny, but it doesn't work out real good on first dates for me. No, absolutely um, not. They end fast. No. Um, yeah. But so, yeah, that's my superpower. And uh, I hope you enjoyed that little uh, spectacle of it all. Jared, you're probably the cringiest person oh, I have ever met. <laughs> yes, so, Jared, Dr. you know Freud would have a field day with that, right? I was you just know, thinking that. Let's go back to the couch. Back to the couch. Yeah, well, I may not, you know, I may not turn in my red couch so quickly. I think that Jared needs therapy, too. <laughs> like you said, Dr. Botts. Every good therapist needs therapy. therapy. So yeah. that's, I don't even take that as an insult, Rachel. Thank you. Ugh, 
Anyway, Logan. I have an interesting superpower. Um, I just found this out about a year ago. I am immune to brain freezes, which means I can bite ice cream and it will not bother me at all. I actually, that is my favorite method of eating ice cream is I just bite into it. So you'll just take an ice, let's say like a vanilla cone. Yeah. And instead of licking it like a normal person, you just take a bite out of the middle? Well, not, well, yeah, out of the middle. I will just, you know, kind just, of bite into just, it. That's your first thing is you just bite right into it? Yeah. Like serial killer. Yeah, no. uh, absolutely. Uh, I think his is the worst one out of all of these. Serial killer is what that is. Anyways, Logan, go ahead and talk about your, like, really cool uh, superpower <laughs> real quick for us. Well, you know, I just, I enjoy ice cream. I mean, who doesn't like ice cream? I do. But I think, you know, it's so tasty. And I think... <laughs> And I, I think, think that too when I, I eat think ice cream. Eat, I think eating it like normal, you know, like you said, licking it, it just takes too long. And I really like the flavor, so I kind of found out. I'm like, I'm gonna bite it one day, and I bit the ice cream, and nothing happened. And so that's I'm basically a superhero now. Maybe just genetically you're superior to me because I have so much bad teeth in my head that I've had to get filled that I can't drink a glass of sweet tea and slosh it around to the back left of my mouth without feeling like I've got like a needle driven up in my roots. <laughs> So maybe, maybe maybe that's not a fault on your part. Maybe I just should have brushed my teeth more as a kid. <laughs> I think that Logan's might be the worst of everybody. I, don't, I, I used to, yeah, me well, and Rachel on. have no quarrel now. Wait a minute, guys. Wait a minute. We got to hear Dr. Botts. So, oh, that's true. Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Botts. Yeah. Enough is, about us. <laughs> what is your superpower, Dr. Botts? boring after all that and, oh. and I, I will say that after listening to all of your superpowers that I take away and I I think I, I believe even more strongly in the view that uh, pleasure and pain is in the eye of the beholder yes. <laughs> so uh, with your <laughs> you're unique I will say that each of you are unique so, I don't know if that's uh, a compliment or not point. by her saying that Dr. Botts I've got a little joke for you real quick okay. Definitely, definitely a compliment. Okay, good, good. Jared, you had a joke? Let me give you a little joke real quick, speaking on the terms of unique. We're waiting. Sure. Okay, uh, well, do you know how to catch a unique rabbit? You Unique up on it. I hate uh, I'll be here all week. You. I hate you. I hate you. No, I don't, but oh, God, that was terrible. Okay, okay so... <laughs> Well, and that, that brings my superpower to mind. It's empathy. Aww. I empathize with your she, reaction to. <laughs> she is like the good person in the story, and we're just the evil villain. And I will be here all week now. Yeah. <laughs> I would have to say that out of all four of us, Logan is probably the worst human being. And that's saying something because Jared is pretty bad. He's pretty being. bad. But like Dr. Botts is by far the best of us. Yeah, but I'm like right below that though. Uh, well, there's I'm a, there's right a, below. It's not like it's a sliding scale. The Dr. Uh, Botts level for sure. Yeah, I think that's all the time we have. And again, back to my team. Everyone has worth. Everyone has worth, but some more than others. Anyway, there's no ranking. No, you're absolutely right. Well, funny enough, Jared, that is all the time we have today, Dr. Botts. Um, on behalf of the three of us, we would like to thank you for being our very first guest to interview. Uh, I am—I was really excited to interview you. You are in a wealth of knowledge, an encyclopedia of therapy when it comes to this field, and you, you really are a powerhouse when it comes to working with clients and empathy. And I would not pick any better person to 
interview the first time. So thank you again, Dr. Botts. Yes, thank you, Dr. Botts. From the bottom of all of our hearts. Well, well thank you all. It's been a pleasure as always. Awesome. Well, that's it for us. I am Rachel Yeager. I'm Logan Burris. And I am Jared Mask. And this is The Sci-Files.